Hi everyone, welcome to the Unity Podcast brought to you by Unibridge. I'm Yun Cheng, your host for today. So before we start, here's a little plug about Unibridge. We are a Singapore overseas education community aimed at bridging the information gap and bringing seniors and juniors closer together. So if you'd like to join our community, please search us up on Instagram at unibridge underscore SG to find out more. On this episode of the podcast, we have invited Carlock, a second year law student at the University of Oxford, to share more about his journey applying for Oxford and choosing to pursue law. So welcome, Carlock, to our show today. Hi. Hi. Uh, maybe you can uh, give a brief introduction about yourself to our audience. Okay, uh, my name is Kalok. I was from Hua Chong JC and I am currently studying law in Oxford. So I just stepped down from my position as the president of the Oxford Singapore Society and uh, I am also a government scholar. So I am tied to the information service which is administered by the Ministry of Communications and Information in Singapore. So um, maybe in today's podcast, we'll just talk a little bit about um, why you chose Oxford Law. And um, because I noticed something that is very interesting, because you, as you mentioned, your, your scholarship is tied with the information service, right? With the Ministry of Communication and uh, Information. So, um, so why law <laughs> when, you, when you took up that, that scholarship? Yeah. Okay, I think the question can, my answer can be split into three parts. Firstly, it would be why UK, secondly, why law, and thirdly, why law on a scholarship that does not let me practice law. So um, firstly, why UK? I think that since um, secondary four, I have always wanted to study overseas. And um, I thought that the UK was a very obvious choice because I was interested in law, which I will go on to in a second. And so being interested in law, it made it very obvious to apply to the UK instead of other countries such as the US because um, firstly, the UK is world-renowned for law, especially Oxford. And secondly, because um, in the US, law is a postgraduate degree which will take up a lot more time. So um, why UK is because um, I wanted the overseas experience, but also it has a different structure from Singapore and the US. So um, in the UK, most courses tend to be three years long. So that cuts down one extra year if you study it locally in NUS or SMU. And secondly, compared to the US, the UK is very different in terms of structure because uh, we do not follow a liberal arts system, which means that you select your course from the start and this allows you to go a lot more in-depth into your subject from the get-go, which is something that not everyone would like, which is why um, you would need to know your personal strengths and weaknesses as well as what your learning style is. And uh, finally, it was because um, the UK has a very similar structure from Singapore in the sense of having tutorials and lectures. And uh, while a lot of the reading is self-directed, uh, we are quite familiar with um, the rigours of studying for A-levels. And finally, for the question of why law, I think that from the start, I thought that law was quite meaningful because I studied arts and I think that there is a very natural extension towards law. So even though um, as a science stream student, you can also choose to pursue law in your undergraduate degree, I thought that um, there were a lot of transferable things in like even geography and literature that I could write in my personal statement uh, to help me for law. And I think that like the UK and Singapore have very similar common law roots. So it might be very interesting to look at how um, the UK common law system has developed and how it is different from Singapore's. Uh, and then like for the question about scholarship, 
I actually applied for scholarships after getting my offer from Oxford. So um, okay. when applying for scholarships, I knew that um, other than PSC Legal, there is no other government scholarship that lets you practice law um, while serving your six-year bond. And so that was something that I came into when applying for scholarships with a like, clear understanding of. And I think the main reason that uh, I accepted the MCI scholarship is uh, firstly because without a scholarship, I cannot afford to, to go overseas. But secondly, because um, throughout the application process, I thought that um, like I could be of value to MCI and that I like the organizations like ATOS. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. So, um, how do you get to know like about MCI? Because, you know, through like the whole scholarship application process, especially, you know, when you you already know that you are going to be taking up law in university. So how do you go about like searching for those scholarships? Do you like um kind of like was like the first question to your scholarship officers usually like, oh, can I study law um, if I take up this scholarship? Was, was that always like your first question to them? Actually, no, because um, I'm not sure if you guys still use BrightSparks, but in my year, like, mm. uh, BrightSparks was a very common, like, application process for a lot of scholarships, other than the government-administered PSC portal ones. And so, mm. like, um, every year, BrightSparks magazine will have, like, this very useful table where they show all the available scholarships for undergraduate study, and then you narrow it mm. down based on um, course as well as um, whether they cover overseas study. So that will cut down a few already because like a lot of scholarships, like they will say explicitly that they do not accept like people practicing law. So mm-hmm. um, obviously I can't apply for those. And um, for those that you do apply for, I think that like um, it's good to spread out your options because I think applying for three to five is um, like recommended by a lot of people. But you, I think that it's giving yourself a chance to explore different options as well. So I think I applied for like anywhere from 8 to 12. I don't have a definite number. Mm, but okay. um, it's not that hard to apply in a sense that Bright Sparks makes mm-hmm. it very easy given like the similar like uh, essay structures for a lot of like uh, private sector scholarships. But at the same time, mm. I think that because I didn't mind working for like government or like public service, actually the bulk of my applications were made on the PSE portal which was even easier because it was just like selecting like an additional option of being mm-hmm. uh, considered for ministries on top of PSC scholarships. So from there, you can just rank the ministries and do your research accordingly, which is why I also applied mm-hmm. for like MCI, MSF, and MFA, I think. Uh, okay, okay, I see. So in your application journey, right, did you apply like before A-levels or was it like um, during NS? Um, I applied both cycles. So I think that during JC, in J2, I was in, so I was in HP and uh, I joined HP from BSP in high school. So that was very unusual for my time. So I remember that when I asked my um, BSP teacher to write a reference, like they couldn't write oh, it. Uh, by the way, before, before yeah. we go into that, right, maybe you can let the audience know what is like BSP. And oh HP. yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. in Hua Chong Institution, like um, we like the IP system is a six-year integrated program and we go all the way to A-levels. In upper secondary from SEC 3 and SEC 4, we can choose special programs uh, based on like our strengths. So for example, there's like a science and math talent program and then there's 
BSP, which is the Bicultural Studies Program, and there is HP, the Humanities Program. So in high school, which is secondary three and four, I was in the BSP program. So I did China studies in Chinese, and I wrote like research papers in Chinese and things like that. But I decided that in JC, I wanted to pursue English literature, and I thought that the best way to do that was to um, apply to the humanities program. So yeah, so that's my backstory, and I forgot to do that okay. introduction. Uh, so when I was in JC, um, I felt like um, a lot of people in HP were very good and like very smart and everything. So um, mm-hmm. I, I applied for like for UK admissions like in J2 as well because everyone was doing that. But I didn't feel good enough to apply for Oxbridge because like for my year, there were a lot of people applying. So I didn't like mm-hmm. dare to compete with them. But I think <laughs> that like um, after one year in army, it gave me like more perspective about why I want to do law. And I think that really like that time given for me to, to reply on things and to prepare for like um, the personal statement and interviews and things like that uh, was like a lot better because you had like one whole year compared to in J2 where you had to like rush the process. And so like mm-hmm. I felt that um, I could make a more coherent like application that really helped at least for my personal thought process. Mm-hmm. So when you were applying for this, um, for, for Oxford during your NS, um, how do you you know find time to write your personal statement, prepare for the interviews, and how do you prepare for those interviews and you know admission tests? I think that I was um very fortunate to begin with because um after BMT and then you get posted to your unit and then you go through training and everything. I was in a unit where I could stay out, which meant that you could like go home from camp every single day and then come back the next work day, which meant that a lot of my weeknights and weekends were free, and I didn't have to spend them in camp per se, which made things like, um, mm-hmm. you didn't have to bring your bulky laptop to camp and things like that. Um, so mm-hmm. I think like that was like why I could apply. And also, um, it's good to also always check like your NS schedule, because I knew some people who applied for like Cambridge, and then they couldn't interview because they had some like important thing where they couldn't take leave for so like I would mm-hmm. say you need to talk to your superiors or like just make sure that during the November December period where interviews usually take place you would ideally be free and also you will have time mm-hmm. to take leave to take like any admissions test beforehand which for law is the LNET um, what I did was I it's definitely a daunting process because like I think for Oxford and Cambridge you have to submit your personal statement earlier than other schools and also you must prepare for the LNET and then the interview. So like I just took it a step at a time really and um I prepared I wrote the personal statement first. After that I submitted it, then I worried about like the law test and then I studied mm-hmm. for it. So uh I studied for it like I think I did like practice papers every weekend. But mm-hmm. that's basically it. I would just say like just um familiarize yourself with the test structure, but also because um the test is kind of like like comprehension and like logic and like verbal. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that you can really drastically improve your score, but just like try mm-hmm. to be familiar with the test structure so that you won't be like caught out doing the actual thing itself because you can't like predict your score anyway. 
and just like mm-hmm. exercise proper time management. For the interview, I think it really depends on um like how much you read and it's honestly for me what I felt was it's not like a like you need to go in with technical knowledge of law per se, but it's good if you can go in with like a sense of mental preparedness. And I think what helped me was just like being at ease and not being nervous because um you always read about how like people like screw up their interviews because of nerves or like when they mm-hmm. get too stressed. But also the opposite can happen when you might feel confident enough when you know the right answers. And what's important about Oxbridge interviews is that the tutors want to know why you come to your conclusion instead of whether the answer is correct or wrong. So that's a very fundamentally different process from what Singaporean students are used to. And I think that mm-hmm. um, you are really not your the best judge of your interview performance. But what's important is that you have to practice like walking people through your thought process and showing how you mm-hmm. get to your answer in, and substantiating it with good evidence instead of getting the right answer and or sticking to your like original answer all the time. So it's mm-hmm. important to be teachable and open to um, constructive feedback and change your stance when needed. So there's no need for mm-hmm. you to defend your stance to the end. It's important to show teachability and humility as well as open-mindedness in considering your answer. And I think that that is mm-hmm. more important. But why I say mental preparedness helps is because I think that like having one year in army where I had like a lot of unopened tabs <laughs> on my phone, we were all about like all those um student room forum like discussions and how people's interviews went. Like that mm-hmm. helped me get a sense of like other people's experiences of interviews and kind of like learning from them in a sense by feeling that um like people had gone there before you. So I think that this helps because like more often than not um, knowing that like other people have gone through the process and turn out fine makes you feel that like mm-hmm. it's really just whether you are a good fit for that kind of like tutorial system or not yeah mm-hmm. yeah so I think it's really something unique to Oxbridge right like the whole um interview process and I guess it also translate in, translates into like a unique way of teaching and tutorial mm-hmm. style in Oxford and Cambridge, right? So, um, I guess moving on from there, you know, after you have secured your place in um Oxford, um, what do you do after afterwards? Like, I I noticed that you like right after NS, you did um a few internships. Oh, actually, you did one internship with um the Law Society Pro Bono, Pro Bono Services, right? So maybe you can walk us through that. Okay, so um. Actually, like, after I got an offer from Oxford, I didn't think that I should do, like, pre-readings for law because that was too intense. And um, so, because I applied in my first year of army, it gave me a lot of time after securing a scholarship and everything to plan what I would do after I finished my NS because I had, like, quite a few months before school started in October. And so um I emailed a lot of like um like like legal internship like opportunities to see like if they would take uh pre university law students and two mm-hmm. that I know definitely do take people are um the law society pro bono services and 
the legal aid bureau. And what I would recommend is really to apply early so that you would get a slot. Because I think some people, they apply too late. And I remember hearing things about how legal aid bureau internships are really hard to get. And how some mm-hmm. of my friends from JC, like the females, they had to um, apply very early in advance. If not, like mm-hmm. the slots will be taken up very soon. So I did one month each with the Law Sock Pro Bono as well as the Legal Aid Bureau. And then I did one month with Ellen and Gladhill and one month with Lee and Lee. So um, I know that Ellen and Gladhill, like as a top four, they are the only ones who take in uh, pre-law students, not by mm-hmm. connections. So that's why I've heard anecdotally. And um, I mm-hmm. actually emailed all the top four firms and only Ellen and Gladhill um, took in like pre-law students. The rest say that they don't as like policies. And then for Lee and Lee, um, I think that uh, the real estate department actually like does take in a lot of like pre-law students. And even in J1, I did a like school internship with their litigation department and corporate as well. So that was how I spent my time after NS. But um, also because I received a scholarship offer from MCI, so I did a three-month internship with MCI in the Economic Regulation Division, which is a policy branch. Yeah, mm-hmm. and finally during my um free time, I volunteered mm-hmm. at Hawk, and it was mainly like online, as like mm-hmm. in the operations team for Project Access International. So I'm not sure if mm-hmm. some of you have heard of it or not, but Project Access is like a mentorship scheme that was like uh founded in Oxford, and they do have like a Singapore team as well. But I wasn't involved with them, so I was involved in the international operations part where I had to like yeah. um coordinate processes and workflows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So well you you took up like what <laughs> five different internships or something? No, it like sounds that. like a lot, but actually for law it's like I think some internships are two weeks and some were like one month long. So law is really like quite short. So you can actually do a lot of internships. And be productive during your time. So actually, I'm just curious, right? Like, why are the law internships so short? Like a one month period. Like, what do you actually do during a law internship? I think that it's short because, like, even for actual law students, this tends to be the length of an internship, and it might be due to different factors. But I guess, like, law students want to pack in their internship if they're actually, like, an undergrad student because they want to Mm. maximize chances of getting a training contract at the end of it. So I think that if it's that short for law students, then for pre-law students, it shouldn't be a lot longer as well. And realistically, Mm. it is because as a pre-law student, you may not be able to help out with much. And that Mm. would also depend on the type of firm that you apply to. So for instance, like, Ellen and Gladhill, they had, like, a very structured, uh, training program for all the interns and even as a pre-law student I got to take part in the intern activities which meant that on top of my individual tasks assigned by my supervisor I also got to take part in uh, group projects and like assessments where we did like a mm-hmm. mock examination in chief and then like the law students were assessed for like training contracts so um, that was mm-hmm. stressful for them but I think that I learned a lot and also like they, they were a bigger firm so they were able to um, hold things like networking sessions with like free beer and you can interact with like the um, industry people. 
I thought that was valuable. Um, even though I'm a non-law student, uh, even though I'm not practicing law in my future like career, because I think that if you are if you are a pre-law student, like you would be able to like kind of get a foot in the door by knowing people in the industry already. And oftentimes, these uh people that attend these networking sessions tend to be like partners who might interview you as well. So you really get an insight into what the firm is looking for in uh future applicants. And um, mm. the flip side is that, like, if you apply to a smaller firm, you might get more responsibilities. And so I didn't actually apply for like any of the smaller firms, I think. But some people mm. apply for like um, H O H, like whole law, and um, Shuklin mm. and Bok, and like so there are the more like boutique firms that specialize in like very like specific areas of law. And so like mm. in these places, I think that. The good thing is that like you might get a longer internship and also more responsibility because they might need like any help they can get and that's also very good exposure as a pre law student. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So, um, you know, you mentioned that you did like a series of law internships and then you moved on to you know the the ministry level, um, with ministry of communications and information to do like. The, I mean, to be part of their economic regulation division, right? So what kind of difference do you see between like, you know, the legal service out there as well as, you know, doing policy research with a ministry? Like what, what kind of difference do you observe? I think it's definitely very different because um, firstly for like legal services, no matter um, what area you like intern with, like litigation or like real estate, it always tends to be like, corporate in nature or to have at least a very predominantly corporate like focus and that is because like realistically this is where like the money is and how law firms like turn profit so for instance like the law the law industry in Singapore at least is quite like narrow and focused and very tight to like the financial sector so um Mm -hmm. like the ups and downs of the market economy would really affect like um business and how like things are structured and also, mm. I think that, like, for law firms in Singapore, uh, what I found even in, like, the bigger firms is that, like, legal tech is something that is, like, parroted about a lot, but you still see how mm. a lot of things are, like, in, like, the back end. So, um, they need a lot of, like, top-down driven approach to drive, like, innovation in the legal sector so as to remain relevant and competitive. So, in mm. comparison, I think that, like, in government, and at least in MCI, what I found was that they do actually champion like um change a lot more and they embrace mm. technology. So at least in the economic regulation di- division, I work on a lot of like tech um policy input. So for example, research into things like 5G, AI, um, data governance, privacy protection, and also um I, I helped in like the digital TV switch over like two years ago. So I thought that was like very interesting because you see how like the government champions things from the ground up and how like public policy can actually impact lives on a very practical level, both in the long term like 5G and the short term like switching over to digital TV. So I think that like the tech aspect is something that really like impressed me in MCI at least. And I think that is because, like, that is part of the portfolio of the ministry. But in terms of policy work, I think that also, like, there's always the risk of an ivory tower and people not knowing, like, what the practical impacts are on the ground. 
So it's also very important that you walk the ground, and that is when public communications come in, because like in like the normal like comms roles, um, there's this branch of the government called Reach, which does mm-hmm. like surveys on the ground and engages with like panel discussions and like um fireside chats with um industry leaders as well as um like other stakeholders and like the members of the public. And this will be generated to like provide policy feedback for ideas that like the policy teams in the ministry might want to propose to implement in the mm-hmm. future so that we know what is relevant and there is a sense of like working together with the people and making information accessible to um create uh policies that really benefit people from every level of policy creation, from the ideation phase to the consulting phase to the actual delivery. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So actually you mentioned some really interesting points because um you, you mentioned how like tech adoption is a, a much bigger thing in the public I mean in, at least in the division like the ministry that you are in. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, um front facing like um not not front facing but like, you know, you, you had to care more about um the holistic opinions of everyone within our society, you know, um, thinking about like possible public implications and things like that. But for the other more le- like all the other legal firms, right? A lot of their concerns about like corporate uh, activities, you know, um, how they would be able to deliver like I guess the biggest financial rewards for the services rendered, right? So I guess that that gives you kind of like a good comparison between like. Um, le- like the legal service in the private sector as well as like the policy making service in within like the government. So actually, after having like such an experience um, prior to university, right? How would you say that kind of like prepared you for your life in Oxford? Um, actually, like before that, I'll give a caveat that um, <clears throat> it's not always like necessarily bad that law firms tend to be very corporate focused so mm-hmm. I would say that like it's definitely rewarding like at least intellectually depending on what department and what area of law you are interested in so for mm-hmm. example if you like litigation and like crafting arguments then um, it mm-hmm. would be very like intellectually stimulating to work in such a department for like um mm-hmm. legal practice because you get to train your mind and also like produce a lot of like very um innovative like turns of law that might help your client in a very mm. like insightful ways and that might be useful as well in like your corporate practice and secondly mm. i think that it might also be because like i spent three months in government compared to like one month each in every law firm so that might mean that mm. i got to do a lot more work and expose to different things but at the same time like it really cemented like why I thought that civil service was the right choice for me. And mm. I think finally, um, I also interned at like the like two pro bono like services, right? So um, mm. one was like kind of like private compared to like legal aid bureau, which is like administered by the Ministry of Law. So I saw how like mm. pro bono was run from the public and like the more private side and how they have differences in funding and resources and what they do to mitigate these challenges. So that was very insightful in terms of like preparing me for law in the sense that I could see how there are different stakeholders and interests to balance in place 
whenever like mm-hmm. issues of like law come in, even in something as like trivial as pro bono, because it really impacts mm-hmm. like the public. And the law being like a social tool is like very pervasive in its reach because like people have no choice but to obey it if they're under certain jurisdiction. So like mm. whether the law is just and how it helps people, whether the rule of law is upheld and um things like how much you care for the minorities in your country are mm. really things that are very pertinent in the area of law. And so I thought mm. that that gave me more perspective into why I was studying what I was studying and the sort mm. of transferable skills that would give me even if I'm not going to practice law in future. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I guess, you know, now that you are in Oxford for two years, right, you have participated in quite a number of like activities in school, right? So um, besides your law activities in school, what other student, you know, organizations are you part of? And um, what has the experience life, like the, how is the student life in Oxford like for you? Okay, um, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this, but like just for everyone's info, like in Oxford, the tutorial system is known as like the perk or like the hallmark of education in the undergrad level, mm. which is... Um, Want to hear more about Carlock's insights into the curriculum, teaching style and extracurriculars at Oxford? Stay tuned for the next episode of the podcast to find out more. And to our audience, if you'd like to hear more of these stories, be sure to stay tuned to our future episodes of Unity. And if you'd like to connect with more seniors and learn more about all things related to studying overseas, do feel free to join our Unibridge community on Telegram. You can find the link to our Telegram group on our Instagram page at unibridge underscore SG. So be sure to give us a follow. We'll see you guys again in the next episode of our podcast. Bye. Bye.